Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, this is Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. I just finished having a really fascinating conversation with Andrew F. Jones about his new book, Developmental Fairy Tales, Evolutionary Thinking and Modern Chinese Culture, that just came out with Harvard University Press in 2011. Simply put, this is a book that you should read. Um, this is an incredibly fascinating study of um, the ways that a discourse of development sort of taken up by um, works of evolutionary biology and works of science fiction um, and other kinds of tropes that were translated in the context of modern China and vernacularized um, into a set of media that includes film and toys and fiction um, and that relates themes of childhood and fairy tales um, and uh, just all kinds of really fascinating things together. Um, It's a wonderful book and uh, we had a wonderful time talking about it. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. We're here today at the New Books Network um, to talk with Andrew Jones about his recent book, Developmental Fairy Tales, Evolutionary Thinking and Modern Chinese Culture, and that just came out hot off the presses with Harvard University Press in 2011. Now, I've already told Andrew I absolutely loved reading this book. It's a really brilliant study of the ways that a discourse of development was taken up from evolutionary works um, that were, you know, many of us are familiar with in our histories of science, Lamarck, Darwin, Spencer, Huxley, um, and the way that discourse of development was translated or vernacularized into narrative forms of modern Chinese literature. It's a really wonderful book, and I'm really thrilled, um, Andrew, that you've made time to talk with us today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. So, Andrew, could you start off by telling us a little bit about your background? Um, sure. I, I, I teach modern Chinese literature and cultural studies, media studies here at Berkeley, University of California. Um, my training was in uh, literature, mostly modern literature, um, but Somehow, I've also uh, been consistently interested in, in music and media technology and their their links to one another. Um, so this book was a, a little bit of a departure in that, in some ways, it seems to um, constellate around intellectual history as well. Um, but perhaps it, it brings together all these various different um, aspects. Great. And actually, that that um, was really striking to me because the first um, encounter that I had with your work was actually your earlier work on music, which is also really fascinating. Um, but how did you make the move from music to this kind of topic? Hmm. Um, that's a pretty interesting question. I, I think there's probably a couple ways of answering it. One one is that uh, when I was writing Yellow Music, which was my previous book about the development of media culture and music in Shanghai in the 20s and 30s. One of the main characters um, was a man named Li Jinghui, who was sort of reviled for many years as as the creator of this kind of degraded, um, salacious, colonial uh, mix of jazz music and Chinese folk music. Um, But Li Jinghui, it turns out, was also a really interesting figure because he uh, pioneered Mandarin language education during the May 4th movement and actually edited a journal called Chaopanyo, um, Little Friend, uh-huh. a children's magazine. Um, so I was kind of interested in um, children's literature and kind of children's publishing through having come into contact with his story. Um, and at the same time, um, studying a lot of the Writings about music by May Fourth intellectuals. I was increasingly kind of struck and actually sometimes a little bit dismayed by the ubiquity and sort of blunt force of their developmentalist critique of Chinese music. Mm-hmm. Um, they're perfectly happy saying uh, people like Xiao Yomei, who founded the Shanghai Conservatory of Music, were perfectly happy to say things like, "Well, um, 
Chinese music is a thousand years behind the West, and we need to just simply jettison it um, in favor of the advanced or evolutionarily advanced um, forms like German Romanticism. And that kind of thinking um, actually also resonated a lot with uh, literary history, and in fact, a whole range of discourses that I had read about or kind of absorbed through reading a lot of materials from that period. So that was part of the motivation to write this book. Great. And had you been interested in the history of evolutionary biology or translations of evolutionary thought before this? Or was this, um, like, have you worked on this before? Or how did you get interested in this focus on evolution um, in particular? Um, yeah, I, I had a sort of passing interest in evolutionary theory, but no, I, I had to kind of re or actually learn the field um, from scratch to, to do the book. Um, what happened really was, in one, if, if 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 there's a developmental fairy tale um, with a moment of sort of evolutionary um, mutation <laughs> that started the book, uh, it was one afternoon when I was in the library at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, where I was teaching at the time. And, well, I guess I could say this is a story in praise of analog sources and stacks and libraries. Um, so I was just looking through the section, I think, about um, children's literature, children's studies, and found an old book from 1937 by a child psychologist, uh, Huang Yi, um, about the psychology of children's drawings. Uh-huh. And I opened up the book, and I was just really, really struck by the, 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 the uh, drawings inside. They're quite beautiful. Um, they're very expressive of uh, the characters that are drawing, like a coolie. Um, a woman who might be a streetwalker or a fashion plate um, on the streets. Uh, right. Joe, right. These, these, are, the, these are the drawings on, in Chapter 3, right? Exactly, right. exactly. Um, and I also knew from being kind of immersed in that period that there was a very strong historicity to the pictures. For instance, the clothes the woman was wearing were very, um, they could be dated to a certain summer um, because of the way that they looked, um, the style that she was wearing. So I was really struck by that and then struck by the contrast with how um, Huang Yi portrayed these pictures as being merely a kind of um, um, way to understand the developmental process or developmental order, as he put it, um, that these children needed to be slotted into in their progress from primitivism to realism. And that really set me off. I, I started thinking about where these kind of terms or where that that seemingly inevitable kind of developmental story came from and um, tracing the, the thread back to um, to its origin kind of led to having to absorb a lot of a, a lot of material about evolutionary uh, uh, thinking and evolutionary theory as it gets translated into China since the late Qing era. Yeah. I mean, that aspect of the book is actually really fascinating um, for those of us who work on the history of science and medicine, right? Because this is just a wonderful um, example of a study that really crosses boundaries between you know, modern Chinese studies, modern Chinese lit, and history of science And I think, a really, really productive way. So let's Thank let's you. get into it. Um, okay. So the um, we'll we'll definitely get to that set of really evocative children's drawings that you just mentioned that I really loved, and they're one um, that's one of many vignettes that's really engaging that you open that you use to open and close these chapters. Um, so the book actually begins with another vignette. Um, this is a in the introduction, and it's a description by a writer that's going to recur throughout this story, Lu Xun, mm-hmm. um, of an impromptu magic show from a piece called Modern History. So can you start us off by saying a little bit about this magic show and what it has to do with the larger context of the book and the story that you're telling? Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. well, that, that piece in particular is, is quite wonderful. It's one of the many, many zawen that Lu Xun wrote. Yeah. Uh, particularly in the early 30s for Sun Bao, the kind of newspaper record in, in Shanghai at the time. And um, actually, Lu Xun seemed a little bit obsessed with this scene of, of magic shows or bian um, fa um, that you could witness on the streets in Shanghai and other places in China at that time, um, apparently with some regularity. Uh, so he came back to this motif 
actually in several different essays. This is one of the more um, interesting and powerful ones. Um, and basically, he's writing about how um, these magic shows are are a kind of deceitful spectacle. Um, that they involve certain kinds of magical transformations, all of them, I suppose, um, you know, staged, of course, um, and that people watch them, they give their money, and then they come back again. Um, but in all of these shows, um, the common denominator is adults who are manipulating uh, uh, animals or children and kind of exploiting them for the purpose of the spectacle. And I think Lu Xing comes Back to this image again and again because it seems to him a, 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 a proper uh, parable for sort of inevitability of oppression and, and a kind of um, cyclical view of history where there's a sort of endless and endlessly repeatable theater of cruelty. Um, and it becomes a powerful image because, you know, Lu Xing was schooled in and powerfully motivated by evolutionary theory and the hope for kind of uh, uh, an intellectual agency that could change the world. Um, and yet, certainly by the early 30s, if not throughout his career, he's also tortured by this sort of doubt uh, uh, or even a Nietzschean image of eternal return where nothing really matters and nothing really changes. Um, so I use the anecdote to sort of get into that uh, issue of the paradox um, or some of the internal contradictions of his generation's faith, and also uh, doubt uh, in this mode of de developmental thinking or evolutionary thinking. Right. Uh, sorry. Um, and actually, the, the phrase that you just brought up, developmental thinking or evolutionary thinking, um, this really introduces what goes on to be um, the main theme or, or certainly one of the main themes of the book, um, mm -hmm. which is the emergence of a discourse of development, right, and developmental thinking mm -hmm. in the Chinese literary and media culture of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So for listeners who haven't yet had the opportunity to read the book, can you say a little bit about what development means in this context? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, it's actually not an easy question. Right. <laughs> right. I mean, in some ways, that's what the book is all about, like unpacking. I'm going to that question, but I'll, I'll take a stab <laughs> at it. Um, uh, if, if we wanted to start in, in the sort of contemporary scene, I don't think it's a, a secret that... Um, Something that we might call developmentalism, Fajanzui, is 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 fairly um, deeply embedded in the DNA of modern Chinese political culture and um, even, of course, government policy. Uh, I quote in the book Deng uh, Xiaoping's famous uh, injunction that development is the only hard imperative. Fajan Tai Su Ying Dali, and uh, you know, we typically understand development as economic development or national development or even through the UN index of human development. Um, but what I'm arguing is that this is actually um, only the tip of the iceberg in a way, that if we trace this idea back to the late 19th century, what we see is that development is really a mode of narrating history and narrating history often with the nation as its subject. Um, and it's also... When I say it's a mode, I think what's important there is that it somehow seems to be a way of thinking or a narrative form that can be broadly applicable in a lot of different fields. And it often presupposes a kind of movement from the primitive to the civilized, um, from the simple to the complex and multiply articulated. Um, so... Uh, that way of thinking, or that particular mode of thinking history or thinking nation, I'm arguing, um, kind of makes its entrance into the Chinese discursive universe through, for instance, Yan Fu's translation of um, um, Huxley's work. Um, but it becomes something much more than that. It's something that kind of moves into the culture in a capillary way and becomes a way of explaining or narrating the sort of predicaments that China was facing in the early 20th century. Um, so that's that's one stab at it. <laughs> yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Further, yeah, further complications have to do with, I think, um, 
or one of one of the central contradictions or paradoxes I'm trying to get at in the book, especially through looking at Lucian's writing, is um, uh, a couple different senses of development that I think are very difficult to reconcile. And one is 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 the um, intransitive sense that is things, as in Darwinian evolutionary theory, um, things will develop of themselves. Right? They don't need to be pushed forward. Um, in fact, human efforts to push evolution forward are simply moot, really. They they don't count. Um, the time scale is so long, um, and the process is so contingent uh, that we don't really matter. Intellectuals don't really matter. So this was, might be a kind of um, intransitive view of development. Um, but for Chinese intellectuals, it was much more uh, vital, at least for most of them, to try to understand development as being a transitive process. That is something that they themselves had some kind of agency in pushing forward, especially when they were trying to understand uh, China as a nation among other nations uh, that had kind of fallen behind in an evolutionary race or, you know, survival of the fittest sort of situation. Um, And that contradiction, I'm arguing, kind of plays out in a lot of the stories and texts um, I look at in ways that sort of make the stories themselves a little bit uh, tortured or unsustainable in the end. Right. And this tension between ideas of um, sort of evolutionary development that incorporates the possibility of individual agency versus not also speaks to these different contexts that you talk about in the book between sort of uh, translating Darwinian versus Lamarckian ideas of evolutionary progress, right? Yes, that, that's right. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about that for our listeners who, who may not um, have be familiar with the Lamarck versus Darwin um, way of thinking about evolution? Sure. Uh, this is a you know a kind of long running um, controversy in evolutionary theory, um, and I actually um, have heard that recently some Lamarckian ideas are starting to make a comeback. <laughs> right. <laughs> which is quite interesting. Uh, but basically, the Lamarckian notion, which I think for a lot of Chinese intellectuals and intellectuals in the West until up until including the 1930s, um, found really attractive, um, was the notion of the, uh, the genetic inheritance of acquired characteristics, right? Um, that is, you know, since giraffes keep stretching their necks out, uh, the second generation of giraffes will have longer necks. Um, and in that crude form, it's basically been disproved by uh, no genetics and uh, Mendelian theories of inheritance. Um, but it was actually a pretty live controversy um, until the 20s, at least. And um, as evolutionary theory kind of enters into journalism and into the discourse of politics and into, um, you know, popular sociology, that is, as it becomes vernacularized, I think a rough and ready, mm, more or less Lamarckian view um, comes to, you know, win the day um, or to become a certain kind of common sense um, in in the West as in China alike. And um, I, I'm kind of arguing that's particularly important for intellectuals, journalists, um, you know, opinion leaders in China because they so desperately want to feel that their agency as intellectuals will have some kind of bearing on China's um, uh, developmental process or its um, effort to uh, manage the problems of modernity. Right. And throughout the chapters of the book, actually, uh, the book takes on and and develops this, no pun intended, actually, but develops this idea of um, the importance of uh, the vernacular and the vernacularization to understanding the history of science and the history of developmental thinking sort of within that as well. And I think a really helpful way. Um, And this is the the example of evolutionary thinking and the translation of evolutionary thinking as you um, take us through in this book is also really interesting because for a lot of scholars of the history of uh, life sciences and evolutionary thinking, it's also very much um, the case that we we tend to understand evolutionary thinking itself as also always being shaped by prevailing economic and political and cultural discourses, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. 
So this is a really, I think, um, very powerful example um, that you're showing of the vernacularization of those ideas much more widely, though, than we typically um, take for granted that, that we typically look at and, you know, children's books and films and all kinds of wonderful sources. Um, so to get us there, um, you, you began the introduction to this book and the introduction to the, many of these really fascinating themes with a magic show. And the chapter also ends with a magic show. Um, it involves a uh, or it ends with a magic show in particular that involves a child and a bear cub. That's also a very powerful vignette. Can you explain that briefly for our listeners? Uh, the anecdote from the Lucian essay? Yeah, the, the child and the bear cub that ends. Right. The um, first chapter. <laughs> Let's see if I can remember it. <laughs> <laughs> if, um, if you want. We can also. No, no, no. The. the, the, the Huh, what was that particular song? Let me, let me get to it. He, it's the child and the beast. He says, I like watching magic shows. Um, he goes on, and it's this account of um, the beating, of uh, the training involving um, sort of pain and beating and trauma of the child and the bear that are taking part in these magic shows. Um, let's see. Right. So th this is this goes back to what I, I, I referenced before that uh, Lucian seems to see in these shows a parable of um, oppression and of a kind of historical pattern that can only repeat itself over and over again. So the bear is um, part of the show. He's half starved, um, and I think very typically for Lucian, he kind of cites some report by Westerners that talks about how um, Chinese. Magic shows are very cruel to these bears. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so he's being exploited, or he's willing to be obedient precisely because he's half-starved. But there's also a child involved in the show who's uh, basically uh, tortured uh, So as a kind of spectacle. His, the grown-ups stand on his uh, belly, they twist his arms, um, and then the child performs his pain, um, so he ends by saying, um, at the end of each show, I think to myself as I walk away, there are two kinds of money makers. One kind is abused to death until another is found as a replacement. And he's talking about the bear. The other kind will grow up to acquire a little child and a bear cub and go on performing the same old tricks. Um, it's really very simple and even seems a bit tedious when you think about it. Yet I go on watch, watching these shows. What else would you have me look at, dear readers? So um, you can see that he's he's... Uh, trying to get a bead on the perpetuation of this kind of um, um, spectacle and obviously talking about a larger phenomenon than merely magic shows. Right. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, so moving on, the next chapter of the book is just really, really wonderful. And it explores the emergence of developmental narratives in which human history is related really interestingly in terms of natural history. Mm-hmm. Now, it centers on a case study of a work that, that I'd actually never heard of. I was fascinated by this. Um, it's a work by Wu Jianren called The New Story of the Stone. Right. Um, can you describe uh, the nature of this work for our listeners? Okay, sure. Um, this is a, a late Qing novel. It's actually from the first decade of the 20th century, um, which is a, a kind of rewrite, remake of um, Hong Omong, uh, but told from a sort of science fiction perspective, um, Zhao Baoyu, the hero of uh, that great Qing novel, um, is essentially resurrected or comes back to life in, in, in contemporary Shanghai of, of 1905. Um, and he kind of sheds all of his romanticism and becomes a, a, an ardent nationalist. He tries to learn about the modern world. He's shocked by, you know, matches and steamboats and um, he goes to the Jiangnan arsenal and, and, you know, gets lots of books and starts to read up. Um, but what starts to happen is that he becomes increasingly sort of depressed and, and, and disillusioned um, because uh, he's faced all around him with these absurdities of contemporary Chinese life and the, the, the horrors of colonialism. Um, the Boxer Rebellion erupts, uh, Eventually, he's captured by local authorities, I think, in, 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 in Wuhan or uh, somewhere in the interior and almost killed just for speaking out about educational policy. Uh, and 
at a certain point in the novel, things become so bad that it sort of lurches into science fiction. Um, and he crosses over into a new realm called the Wenming Jingjie, or you could translate that as the realm of civilization. Um, it could also maybe be translated as, as the modern world or the modern realm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a kind of compensatory science fiction utopia that makes up for all of the depredations and all the disillusionment of real Shanghai in 1905. Um, it's a world in which uh, China has um, developed to a degree that it's already surpassed the West. So it's a kind of fantasy of, um, um, you could call it immaculate development. Um, and it's affected through a dream image. Um, basically, this world is a, a dream into which Zhao Baoyu has entered. Um, the tragedy of the book is at the end he wakes up uh, and sort of tumbles back into the black hole of history um, with an even greater sense of disillusionment. Listen, this, this is an example I, I'm trying to argue about. The problem of telling stories um, based around evolutionary premises is that since evolutionary time is usually glacial, very, 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 very slow. Um, novelists like Wu Jianren need to create a wrinkle in time in order to sort of imagine a future in which developmental processes have already taken place. Um, but uh, it introduces a kind of hole in the middle of the story, um, and that's exactly the hole that Zhao Baoyu falls into in the end when he wakes up and finds that, you know, um, things are just as bad as they've always been. Right. I mean, this is a, this is a really fascinating um, case study, and I really it made me want to immediately go out and read the novel. Frankly, um, because it's, it's it, a lot of fun. <laughs> it does it does seem like a lot of fun. I mean, in the course of this novel, um, it, in the description that you provide us really helpfully in the book, um, he's there are a number of transformations that are happening that are really um, kind of wonderful for those of us who um, know something about traditional Chinese literature or um, natural Mm. history. Um, So one of the things that really struck me is that there are, you describe the incorporation of what we might sort of in scare quotes call, you know, traditional Chinese modes of knowing um, of of knowing the world into a range of technological devices, Mm -hmm. like devices for detecting qi and things like this. Can you, um, what can you talk a little bit about that? Because those are just completely fascinating. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I guess at, at the border of Wenming uh, Jingjie, the, the realm of civilization, there's sort of uh, X-rays, but they're X-rays that allow authorities to see if your you know chi is adequate enough to enter into <laughs> modern realm, um, which I guess one ups the Department of Homeland Security. Or <laughs> it's even better than any technology we have today, and throughout. That section, uh, Wu Jianren plays this game. He kind of posits technologies that outwest the West and in fact are based on, um, uh, early texts or based on the assumptions of early, um, um, uh, sort of preaching philosophy. Uh, so it's a kind of brilliant, I don't know, turnaround or, or, um, um, philosophical move. And it's actually one that had by that time, a kind of tradition in the Yang Wu um, um, intellectual uh, movement from the mid to late Qing of kind of locating um, even, say, evolutionary theory in some writer's eyes um, could find some kind of precedent in in, in Zhuangzi or some kind of precedent in um, um, even in, in, in the Analects. Uh, Unfortunately, however, a president it wasn't fully developed. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of that kind of commentary in Yen Fu and, and earlier. Um, so he's kind of concretizing those sort of notions there. But also, um, what's quite interesting is Zhao Baoyu also becomes a sort of Jules Verne-like figure in the realm of civilization, and he goes out uh, across the world, and it doesn't seem to be a world with any borders, or maybe it's a world that's completely dominated by a Chinese empire. So he flies through Africa and he goes out in search of um, um, natural historical specimens, much like a Western imperialist adventurer um, right. at the time. And he even nets a quen, um, the giant fish and, and a peng bird, and brings them back to a huge museum of natural history um, in the Wenming Jingjie. So there's a kind of, I don't know, parody. I'm not sure if it's a parody or, or, or a fantasy of um, complete knowledge 
and the complete assimilation of all of the entire Chinese tradition and literary tradition to this kind of gigantic museum, um, which is both modern and the basis for a new civilization. It's so brilliant and so fascinating. And you actually... It's so sad to think that the Pung bird becomes a a sort of embalmed specimen. Oh, yeah. It's a sort of murdering to dissect, Right. right? Um, I d- do you know offhand if there's a translation of that work available just in terms of thinking of assigning it to students? Um, unfortunately, there, there isn't yet, but it would be a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mental note. Um, mental note. And actually, in the course of this, you just um, mentioned Jules Verne. And one of the things that you bring up in this chapter that's also really interesting is um, sort of the way the translation of works of science fiction, including Verne by Lu Xun, um, actually helped shape this discourse of development in this period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, one of the things I look at in that chapter is mm, the way that, in, in a somewhat unlikely or counterintuitive way that I, I'm arguing that some of the works of Luxing, for instance, are actually quite deeply shaped by um, what I'm trying to call a sort of novel of evolutionary adventure. That is novels like um, Bellamy's Looking Backward, a kind of American utopian novel, or uh, Jules Verne, uh, that try to play with evolutionary time and mm, sketch out the consequences of thinking about history and evolutionarily in evolutionary ways. Um, so looking backward was a text that was really, really um, formative for a lot of intellectuals in the late Qing, including Lu Xing, and um, kind of look at the interesting relationships between um, looking backward, its translation into Chinese, Lu Xing's translations of Jules Verne, and then finally, uh, uh, um, his his own work and its appropriation of evolutionary ideas. Mm-hmm. And speaking of fascinating kinds of sources that you um, really gift us with in this book, the next chapter continues this exploration um, to look at uh, what you um, I think called the vernacularization of evolutionary thought. And in particular, uh, one of the fascinating kinds of sources that this chapter discusses is a set of children's primers that incorporate sort of modes of classifying animals into vocabulary. And so you talk a lot about um, the images of animals and sort of pedagogy in children's books in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Can, can you talk a little bit about these these children's books, these primers in particular? Oh, sure. Um First thing, just to um, continue an earlier theme, I should give credit to um, uh, the Kotzen Children's Library, sorry, Kotzen Children's Library, Princeton, um, which has an amazing collection of um, global children's literature, including a huge, huge cache of um, Chinese um, children's literature, primers, textbooks from um, the Republican period, late Qing, and um, past the 1949 divide as well. So it was invaluable to look at those materials there. Um, I think uh, the idea of reading those materials is one, one of the kind of persistent concerns of the book is the way in which um, children uh, became one of the main instruments through which Chinese intellectuals, educators, um, writers were trying to think through the question of development. Um, children seem to embody quite literally developmental processes, and they became a sort of uh, figure upon which or through which intellectuals could posit or perhaps even affect that process through education. Um, so children's books are kind of mm, become an instrument in uh, affecting development, and I look at them from that standpoint, but also they're kind of interesting vernacular museum of you know how how scientific ideas were taught to children, um, how they're figured both in stories and illustrations, um, and how kind of new way of understanding the world or the nation as being biological um, comes through in these texts, um, which I think I call something like, you know, uh, in information texts. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these texts are just full of really striking images of the children learning with animals, learning from animals, mm-hmm. playing with animals. I mean, are there any particular um, texts that um, you actually experienced in the Cotson Children's Library that really struck you mm-hmm. in this way? Well, there's, there's quite a few. It's, it's, um, 
spent a lot of time looking at these, um, and I got particularly interested in the the cover images of right. uh, some of the more prominent journals. Basically, there were two competing magazines that were trying to capture the the, the children's market, um, which often means, I guess, catching the attention of educators or parents as well. Um, and that was our Art Hongshujie and Xiaopengyo. They were um, produced respectively by Zhonghua Shujui and Shangwen um, Chuguat, the commercial press and um, China Book Bureau, which of course were the two major um, dominating players in the textbook market as well as in the literary market. Um, and in fact, a lot of their work was subsidized by the textbook market. So each of them had their kind of flagship children's magazine. Um, and when you look through those magazines, there's some very striking kind of um, recurring images or tropes or themes. Um, there's a lot of stories about, um, I guess you could put it a sort of dog-eat-dog world in which there's a, a struggle for survival. So it's a pretty crude instantiation of a certain idea of evolutionary um, development that's kind of made into children's stories. But in the pictures themselves, they're often quite whimsical and funny. Um, for instance, you know, an elephant um, practicing piano as a little girl watches um, the elephant learn piano, that kind of thing. Um, children dancing with dogs or monkeys. Um, I was very interested in this, um, you know, from a social historical viewpoint, probably not too many kids, for instance, had domestic pets, even dogs, except maybe, you know, well-off families in Shanghai or Tianjin or in the co kind of coastal treaty port cities. But these images actually were being sent around the country to public schools and, and even deep into the interior. So it's kind of curious about what they were trying to say or why these tropes kept repeating so often. Um, I think one reason is, of course, that uh, it seems the purpose of education was to... Mm, Effect a developmental process that would kind of separate children from the the mere savage or the merely bestial. Um, so that kind of process is encoded in these pictures, often in in sort of you know uh, reversible ways, <laughs> ways that play on on on, on the um, uh, closeness actually between children and animals, um, and. I try to put these pictures and images also in a larger sort of glo global context of colonialism and of an anxiety about um, um, whether or not China or Chinese children can become civilized, um, can become modern, as it were, um, and how that process of becoming can be managed by educators and intellectuals. Right. And yeah. this, this actually um, raises a theme that continues through the rest of the book. And so if, if we move to chapter three from, um, from this discussion, you, you call this, um, somewhere, I don't know if it's in the introduction or in this chapter, but an introduction to the cultural history of the child in modern China and this theme and the importance of the child as a figure, um, the pedagogy of the child, the child in the narrative, um, discourse of development really, um, recurs throughout the rest of the book in fascinating ways. Um, now, one of the um, major sources that is, extra is extraordinarily striking that begins this chapter is the source that you actually mentioned um, earlier in this interview when you talked about the source that really got you interested in thinking about development in the first place. And this is this 1937 book on the psychology of children's drawings. Mm -hmm. So um, can you, we, you've talked a little bit about these images, but can you say a little bit more about the context of this book as a whole and the kind of work that it's doing in terms of the argument that you're making in this chapter? Um, <clears throat> well, starting from the those images again. Yeah. Well, they're, they're really striking, right? And it's sort of, yeah. um, the, the chapter opens with them, and this is after we've been, um, after you've shown us these wonderful cover images of children playing with animals, and you know, the, the elephant playing the piano, and then mm -hmm. it moves to this very, very different kind of image that still is very much about um, the sort of understanding the child as a figure in this larger cultural history, but through a very different kind of image that um, I had never seen images like that in, you know, in a, a Chinese text before. So, right. Um, is Later on, when I was thinking, uh, just recently, I, I, I thought about those 
images again. And, and it struck me that they're a little bit like the photographs of August Sander, the, the famous German um, uh, portrait photographer who kind of systematically um, created a gallery of social types in, in um, his photographs of Germ Germany in the early 20th century. Um, Walter Benjamin has written quite beautifully about his uh, mm -hmm. uh, photography. Um, so looking at those pictures, they are quite different than those portrayals of children in children's magazines and that they seem to um, represent or give us a taste of um, the way that children could actually look at the world critically and in a way that was based on their own historical experience. Um, but the tension that sort of got this um, project um, started was, was, was my sense that actually somehow uh, Huang Yi, the child psychologist who compiled the pictures, wasn't able or wasn't interested in giving um, children their due or, or allowing them to speak historically. Um, instead, he wanted to sort of plug them into um, what he saw as a universal developmental process um, um, through which actually they would be tamed in a sense, um, or in which this kind of very striking social vision that they manifest in the drawings would be, would be tamed. Um, and that's an interesting word to use, I suppose, because I also relate this back, um, later on in the book to a trope that Lu Xing likes to evoke a lot about, um, the taming of animals as a kind of parable of the taming of Chinese people as sort of colonial subjects or modern subjects. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the images there can speak to a lot of the themes that resonate through the book. Mm -hmm. And actually, if, if I had to characterize my method, it w which wasn't entirely conscious as I was writing the book, but it certainly, it sort of, it seems to operate through tropes or images that sort of resonate with one another throughout and keep sort of recurring throughout the book. So I, I, I'd say that that's one way that I can situate it, the larger project around those images. Mm. Yeah, thank you. And th this chapter also goes on to really explicitly take on um, one of the themes that's in the title, Developmental Fairy Tales. Mm. And so yeah, you argue here that um, the discourse of fairy tales and sort of folklore studies is central. Um, well, the discourse of fairy tale and folklore studies is central to this chapter, and you argue that there are important discussions of the nature of progress and the role of children's development that are embedded in discussions of child's play and in fairy tales in this period. So, mm -hmm. can you um, can you tell us a little bit more about the importance of fairy tales for readers who or for listeners who again haven't had the chance to read this book yet? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this this actually speaks to um, the the one thrust of the book, which is explicitly about modern Chinese literature and modern Chinese literary history. Um, as is, I think, really widely known, um, Zhou Zhuran and Lu Xing and their sort of group or coterie of intellectuals around Beijing University in in the um, late teens, early 20s, were fascinated by folklore studies and by um, uh, children's literature, children's songs, um, because they saw it as perhaps representing a sort of primitive or vital energy, a popular energy that could be harnessed in creating a new vernacular. Um, and so children's songs and even the idea of kind of tonghua, um, um, children's stories or fairy tales, um, became kind of central to them to in, 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 in trying to articulate or theorize, you know, um, how modern Chinese literature was going to develop. Uh, at the same time, fairy tales were really important uh, because they saw them as uh, the kind of the, the, the origin or the primitive origin of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, but they were also important because they also saw them as being instrumental in helping children develop into new, modern, um, um, you know, properly uh, schooled subjects. So there's also another kind of contradiction, I think, embodied in their take on fairy tales. Um, um, the, it was a genre that was burdened with both being primitive, savage, a source of vitality out of which a new literature could development. To develop and also a means to develop 
um, children in a kind of pedagogical, pedantic way. And that tension sort of informs um, a lot of debates they had, and actually, I argue some of the some of their writings as well. Right, and yeah. and along with um, fairy tales and sort of showing the importance of this of fairy tales to this discourse, you also um, talk about how this plays out in the context of toys, of children's toys, and um, sort of advertisements for educational toys and discussions of educational toys. Can you say a little bit about that? Sure. Um, and I should note, there's uh, uh, Sue Fernsendler has also done some really interesting work on on toys um, and the discourse of toys um, at this period. Um, well, part part uh, one aspect of this is that I'm really interested in the book, um, not only how a discourse of development or developing children um, becomes really important at this time, but also the way in which it's materially linked in or commercially linked into the growth of the publishing industry um, and the growth of a kind of industry centered around um, children and education. So there's also a sort of, you know, social history or business history aspect to looking at these kind of materials. Um, for instance, commercial press, which had a basically a very lucrative um, monopoly on selling um, textbooks to public schools also went into the kind of toy industry. Um, and at the same time that they were publishing huge amounts of materials about how to, you know, make your child into a modern citizen and publishing children's magazines for kids and publishing, um, fairy tales. Um, they also, and publishing manuals about how to, you know, provide the right toys for your children. They also went into the toy business. Um, so it was, a kind of discourse about children that was also fueled by selling um, goods uh, to children and to their parents um, who wanted to make better children, to make a better nation. So there's a certain circularity to the whole um, venture. Um, and toys became pretty important in this discourse for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that they're highly saleable commodities, um, but also... Um, the idea was that mm, toys should be Chinese made. Um, and this obviously gets into the, the, the material that I present, I guess, in the next chapter, which is about a film called Playthings. Right. Um, which is, um, completely centered around, um, um, uh, toy makers and, toys as a kind of metaphor for um, the very serious uh, adult concerns of China's domination by foreign powers, um, both militarily and economically. Mm -hmm. Can you actually, that's a, it's a totally fascinating film. And you, you actually begin the next chapter, um, chapter four with this set of photo montages that pair images of toys with ones of emaciated children in a mm -hmm. really, really striking way. And then move to this discussion of the film. Um, can you actually talk a little bit more, um, for our listeners about, um, either or both of these really, um, fascinating sets of images like the, sure. Yeah, the, the images are, um, they're from a, uh, a magazine that was published in the, um, 1930s in Shanghai called Shidai Manhua. Um, and I was really actually very delighted to see that, um, there's now a module in the MIT Visualizing Cultures really? uh, website that actually includes all of these images and a really well written essay, a wonderfully informative essay by, um, by a colleague of ours. Um, giving a background to that so everyone can go look at those images and, and, and kind of um, revel in their amazing creativity and their acerbic and kind of desperately satirical commentary on, on, on contemporary Chinese life in the 30s. Um, so I, I had looked through those magazines, you know, on paper uh, years ago in, in Shanghai, and those particular images were quite interesting because they present children's toys kind of arrayed or in matching images with um, photographs of children who are starving in the countryside. I think most of them are from, you know, 1934, 1935. Um, and the implicit commentary has to do with the idea that um, children should not become commodities 
or commodities should not become children. There shouldn't be some kind of um, exchangeability between the two. So it's a very interesting um, commentary on the commodity form, but also an interesting commentary on, on, I guess, a certain fetishization of children in the cities where, as children in the countryside were, 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 were suffering terrible, terrible fates. Um, so it's, it's a very trenchant commentary and one that leads me into discussing contemporary discourse around the year 3334, um, about, um, toys and about the movement to promote domestic goods in China and about the way in which children were often starting to become conceptualized or viewed as uh, guohuo, as domestic products, mm-hmm. as products to be formed through educational products, again, uh, um, um, to represent China on a kind of international um, market or international stage. Um, and these are that that kind of tendencies is, is being critiqued in, in, in Shidai Manhua, um, modern sketch, as it was known in English. Um, and it also kind of informs this film, Playthings. Uh, and the film is by one of the great directors of the Chinese leftist um, film movement in the early 30s, Song Yu. And it's about a toy maker, kind of artisanal toy maker, who lives in the countryside, played by Ran Lingyu, the great um, silent film actress of that era. Um, and she has a kind of workshop or cottage industry production, but because of the civil war and because of economic displacement, she's driven into a shanty town in, in Shanghai. And we see a process whereby, you know, um, the production of toys is kind of taken over by uh, the national bourgeoisie, in this case by a kind of returnee student from Germany who starts a factory and starts producing these industrially. Um, and the film, at first glance, seems to be um, praising or talking about the inevitability of the modernization of the Chinese toy industry as a way of talking about Chinese national resistance and um, its its um, uh, its economic development. And, of course, this is another story about development, child development and economic development mixed together. Um, but in the end, uh, our heroine, Ran Lingyu, the toy maker, is so brutally dispossessed of everything she ever had, her, her, her business, uh, her daughter, who's killed in the Japanese attack of 1931. Um, and then finally, actually, her son, who it turns out has been kidnapped and adopted by the guy who's opened the factory, uh, excuse me, by someone related to him. So it's it's a very um, kind of brutal story of dispossession in the end um, under the guise of a story about economic and national development. And again, I'm trying to tease out some of those contradictions um, that exist in this developmental story. Um, and the film was very popular. It was one of the great um, kind of successes of the Shanghai leftist cinema in in the year 1933. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, so because I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, let's actually move to the final chapter. Um, okay. We come to the final chapter, and this is the chapter right after Playthings of History, um, where we also come to one of um, sincerely my favorite historical characters in any of the books that I've read in recent memory. There's a <laughs> lot of books. And this is a blind Russian anarchist and Esperanto advocate, Vasily Aroshenko. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no way I'm going to even remotely do justice to how awesome this guy is. So <laughs> if you don't mind, could you, um, could you explain a little bit about who he is and a little bit about his awesomeness for our listeners? Cause he is incredibly awesome. Well, you've said it all. He was a blind <laughs> anarchist, Esperantist. <laughs> um, he, he's yeah, a really amazing, uh, figure. And the more you scratch the surface, the more it becomes this, kind of um, marvelous and untold tale of transnational connections and of this sort of um, amazing, vibrant world of thought and energy from that period. But he, he was, he was yeah, blind. He was from near the border with Ukraine. He went to the Moscow School of the Blind. Um, one of the amazing anecdotes that I um, came across is that he claimed later on that his sort of commitment to anti-racism and anti-imperialism. Um, oh, there's my phone. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. 
that had to do with um, uh, uh, the visit to his school one day of a Chinese gentleman. Um, he had been told all sorts of sort of negative catechism about the inferiority of the yellow race. Um, but a Chinese gentleman visited their school. Uh, he couldn't see him. Of course, he was both blind and colorblind. Um, but he felt his gentleness and his sort of cultivation. Uh, and uh, this kind of led him to question everything he'd learned from his uh, teachers. It turned out that that gentleman was Li Hongzhang, um, who was visiting Moscow at the time, uh, and had visited the school on a whim when he was walking down the block from visiting a, a, a Russian tea merchant. <laughs> this is just one of those awesome stories about <laughs> Um So he ended up going to England first, and then um, becoming a sort of educator for the blind um, in India, in Burma, and then finally in Japan, and everywhere he went, he was basically kicked out by local governments, either colonial governments or in the case of the of Japan, the sort of uh, 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 local government who suspected that he was a seditious character. Um, I guess he had made friends with a lot of local socialists and anarchists. Um, so he ended up being taken in by none other than Lu Xun and Zhou Zhouran at their home in Beijing and living with them um, for uh, about a year. Um, and lecturing at Beijing University on women's rights and on Russian literature. Um, and at the same time, I think, I'm trying to argue, um, having a really quite profound influence on Lu Xun's writing as he translated and worked with Yaroshenko to kind of think about and theorize and write um, modern Chinese children's literatures and fairy tales. Um, so that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Um and at the same time, in Beijing, he also had a sort of group of people around him um, um, from all over the world, actually, from Burbank, California, and from Japan, and, and from Korea, and, and, and elsewhere, who were this kind of international group of anarchists and writers. It was a very lively scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And actually, one of the works that Lucian translated by him was this piece called A Narrow Cage that you... Mm -hmm. um, that I was delighted to find that you give us a translation of it in the appendix. Right. Um, and this story is really striking and really kind of forms the centerpiece of this chapter and the work, uh, you know, a lot of the work that this last part of the book is doing. Um, can you explain the story briefly for our listeners? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a very strange, um, um, enigmatic and, and kind of magical story. I, I think, mm -hmm. um, I was really struck by it when I first came across it. Um, yeah, it's interesting actually because Yadoshenko is, is is fairly unknown in Russia, um, but of course he he has a certain fame or notoriety in in, in China um, simply because of his association with Lu Xun. Um, but this story in particular was, I think, the first one that Lu Xun translated of his, and it appeared in Xinqingnian New Youth, um, so it has a certain kind of uh, 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 importance in that way. Um, and the title, Sha De Long, uh, became a sort of buzzword in May 4th youth culture. Um, it came to refer to like the family that you needed to break out of, the narrow cage that you needed to um, 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 escape. Um, that cage being maybe something like an iron house uh, of traditional culture, or the restrictions of uh, feudalism, what have you. Um, the story itself, though, is, is very weird and a lot more contradictory and complex than um, the slogan. Um, it's about a caged zoo tiger, a Bengal tiger, maybe reflecting on Yeloshenko's experience in India and Burma, um, who is disgusted by the smell of humanity and disgusted by um, being on view, being a spectacle. Um, and he has this kind of beautiful nobility and a beautifully complex um, figural language. That is, he thinks to himself, I, I suppose in, in Tiger, um, but it's translated into, um, originally it was written in Japanese by Hiroshenko. Another amazing thing about Hiroshenko, um, <laughs> that a lot of his um, writing was in Japanese um, and then translated into Chinese by Lu Xun. Um, in any case, uh, the, the, the Tiger falls into a dream of his native haunts, of his native forest. Um, and having... Well, it's actually not clear if it's a dream or not, but he, he finds himself back in his native haunts. And having had the experience of being locked up in a narrow cage, he resolves to free all the beings. It's almost bodhisattva-like, all the beings who are, who are, who are still in 
um, bondage. Um, but this has terrible unintended consequences. The sheep in a pen he wants to release don't want to be released, and he gets very angry at them. Um, the goldfish in a tank don't want to swim out in the wide sea, um, and he ends up swiping the tank and knocking it over um, with predictable consequences. Um, so this figure of liberation becomes also a sort of um, a figure of destruction for those he wants to liberate. So, of course, it's a, it's a parable about revolution. It's a parable about the unintended consequences of wanting to develop develop those you see as being undeveloped. Um, and it turns out that once the tiger uh, sort of falls in love with a Indian princess who is asked or, or is about to um, be burnt alive because of the death of her Maharaja. And some of this is sort of strange and probably politically incorrect <laughs> um, <laughs> appropriation of um, ideas about India mm-hmm. at that time that circulated. Um, um, he wants to save her from having to perform sati. Um, and at the very moment that he's going to save her, um, basically the, the Redcoats arrive, the British Army arrives, the colonialists arrive. And so even this little bit of agency or, uh, uh, or this little bit of um, um, sort of initiative that he has is eventually taken away from him, and he's left utterly helpless. Um, and it, it's difficult not to see this as a kind of parable about the post-colonial intellectual who wants to institute modern universal ideals um, and to become a liberator. Um, but then finds himself trumped, as it were, by the fact that those modern universal ideas came from the West in the first place. Um, so that's one way to read this parable, but there are many others. Um, and that's one reason why I wanted to include the translation, because I think it's a very rich text, and, and my reading is just one reading, and I, I hope people will, you know, uh, get even more out of it. Absolutely. And I think you're including the translation also lets us um, have this very rich text to use in teaching as well. Um, I can see just there are tons of opportunities um, to use this in classes on China, on the history of um, colonialism, on all kinds of topics. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So Andrew, it's um this is obviously an extraordinarily rich book and there are a million and one things that we could have talked about that we didn't have time to get to but mm-hmm. is there anything in particular about the book that we didn't cover but that you'd like to specially point out for listeners who may not yet have had the opportunity to read it hmm. well I, I think we've actually covered a, a lot um, and gone through chapter by chapter um I suppose one thing that I guess should be clear, but I could point out is that if the book has a, a, um, you know, a hero <laughs> or a Zhu Ren Gong, a main figure, that's Lu Xun. Um, and that's what, that was a kind of self-conscious choice I made to um, write a kind of stealth monograph about, about Lu Xun. I know author studies are a little bit, um, you know, unfashionable, uh, <laughs> but uh, in fact, there hasn't been any there have been very few monographs solely devoted to his work in, in recent years. So um, uh, it is also a book about looting, about his writing, and about his formation in the crucible of this kind of um, evolutionary thinking. Great. And what are you working on now? What's next for you now that this book is um, is now out in the world? Uh, well, I've already kind of um, launched into a new project, um, and I'm Going back to my uh, 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 interest in music and in sonic culture and media technology. So right now I'm working on a study of um, primarily, I suppose you could say, of of Chinese or or music from the Chinese-speaking world in the 1960s. Um, But I'm trying to situate it in terms of certain global changes in the technology of music uh, production and dissemination at that time. Um, and also looking at the kind of discourse of folk and folk music and the electrification of folk music, both in the People's Republic of China and also in Taiwan in the 60s and 70s. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the new, the new book. It's, it sounds like another fascinating project. And as soon as that's done, let me know and we'll talk about that one as well. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Andrew, 
We've taken up a lot of your time. Um, thank you so much for making oh, the time to talk thank with you. us. I, the book is brilliant. Um, it's a total pleasure to read, and I say that completely sincerely. And it's really given me a lot to think about, and I hope um, that it reaches a really wide audience. And I think it deserves a wide audience of not just scholars of modern China and Chinese literature, but also scholars of the history of science and medicine and evolutionary thinking and, um, and translation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. This is Carla Nappi from New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for being with us, and I'll see you next time.